0: Everything's so
1: exotic. Everything's going to be... Hollywood bomb, guys, just, everything yeah. is just so... I know. Really. It's so crazy because you're in your Subaru. Where's your, where's your,
2: where's, your where's your limo, man?
1: <laughs> Glob
2: Culture Podcast is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Casper is a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to consumers, el- eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house. Has a sleek design and is delivered in a small, how did they do that size box? In addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. The mattress industry has forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. An obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price supportive memory foam to create an award-winning sleep service with just the right sink and just the right bounce time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015 in fact it's now the most awarded mattress of the decade there's free shipping and returns to the u.s and canada try casper for 100 nights that's more than three months risk-free in your own home if you don't love it they'll pick it up and refund you everything and now here's a special offer (laughs) to listeners of the glop podcast Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash GLOP and using GLOP as your promo code. And gentlemen, welcome to the GLOP Culture Podcast, because we are in interesting times and in interesting places. For example, Jonah Goldberg is somewhere in Washington, D.C., which is now the epicenter of literally everything that is going on in the world that anyone is paying any attention to minute by minute, second by second. I'm, in, I'm in New York City, <laughs> which is still paralyzed by, by uh, traffic around Trump Tower, and Rob Long is in a car.
1: Yeah, as always.
2: Rob Long, where are you in your car right now?
1: <laughs> I am uh, on Houston Street driving out of town.
2: Rob Long is in is in is in the. I had to pull
1: over to do, arrange my audio, the various audio uh, functions that I need to arrange to do this. And, um, but you were in uh, fact yes. driving while you do this. I am driving. I, I didn't do it last time, but this time I did because I just really didn't have time to arrange a car. Doesn't that sound great? Arrange a car. He
2: didn't yeah. have time to arrange yeah. a car. As he if, dri- as if, he if you're in
1: feature films, if you're in feature films, here's how it works. They take you everywhere. You have a car, you have a car at your disposal all the time. If you're doing a feature, you say, "Oh, I left my wallet somewhere or my phone." The, the car will go back. You have constant, constant service. In, in television, especially television that has a soundstage and a home base, they don't give you nothing. I mean, they give you a little. They, I have a little Uber allowance, but uh, I don't use it that often.
2: Can I? Can I tell a quick story? So, Rob, of course, the executive producer of CBS's. Kevin can wait Monday nights on CBS. Yes, uh, cur- and the currently the number one show on Monday nights, I believe, nice. uh, based on okay. zaptoit.com. dot um, And I was about uh, twelve years ago. I, I for a season, I was a consultant on The West Wing, and I remember going out to meet the writing staff of The West Wing in two thousand four two thousand five. Right. And going to the Warner Brothers lot to spend my a couple of days working with the writing staff. And you go up to this building, which is the West Wing building. And uh, on the lot of two-story building, as most of these offices are. Low
1: 1930-style two-story stucco building.
2: Right. And you walk up the stairs. And here is you know the most garlanded show on television.
1: Yeah.
2: This writing staff sitting around. A a formica table. Oh,
1: well, I wouldn't a, do that. I wouldn't a, put up that. In a
2: cheap wood-paneled room with <laughs> carpet from 1954, and sure. it was like I had been ushered. That was a good
1: into, year for carpet, just to be clear. That was that was the best year, yeah.
2: <laughs> and it was like I had been ushered into the manager's office at a used car lot. That it was like, this was the area, this was the place on which right. no money was going to be spent <laughs> in Hollywood. It well, was just the y- writing staff ago, of the West Wing.
1: Years ago, it the was Disney, a fascinating Disney thing. Channel used to do a, um, a show, and they filmed it in Orlando. They had a, a studio in Orlando, which I, I think they still do, but they don't do any, any production there. But they did a, a bunch of Disney Channel shows in Orlando, and a friend of mine was working on one. And they would give, they would take tours. they, they have tours go through it. Uh, it was sort of big, big new building with sort of glass walls and everything, and this guy swears he saw, he heard the tour guide say to a giant tour, "Um, and the, here is where we keep the writers." <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is, you know, uh, all you need to know about right. where the well Well, uh, you know, the, the reality is that the, the problem with, all, with with any kind of investment like this is, if you do a TV show, um, at a certain point, you kind of know how it's going to turn out. You kind of know how much money there's going to be. You can project. And if it's doing a certain number in the in the ratings or, or it's got a certain amount of popularity or whatever, uh, you, you can get, you're can you already pre-selling it. I mean, the, the studio involved in, in selling uh, Kevin Canawait, the show I'm working on, is already estimating with a fair degree of accuracy what, what the number is going to be. So the game they're playing between now and, you know, two, three, four, five years from now is... How little can we spend uh, of the money that we think we're gonna get? And that really does drive sort of every conversation, which is that usually this conversation with me starts with like, listen, we want you to do the show you, you wanna do. We want you guys to be big and be distinctive, and we love that you have these great signature moments. Um Yeah, but we're also wondering if there's a way to, you know, shoot the whole thing in the you know back of a school bus that we can rent. Um and that's just, that's just the nature of any kind of investment where you kind of know what the outcome's going to be. In a feature film, it's slightly different because you don't know. It could go big. It could, it could open big. It could be a huge hit. It could be a sleeper or whatever. Every, everyone is still hoping when they're producing a, a, a feature film. But with a television show where you've had a, you know almost a year's worth of ratings and you're getting a sense of, 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 of what it's going to be, uh, there's no more hope. There's just preserve, preserve.
0: Well, my, I mean, uh, my... No More my, Hope seems like a good theme across a lot yes. of different realms. In the yes. yes, and, yeah. and
2: particularly... To, so one one final story. So my friend Joseph Epstein, a longtime commentary contributor who writes both essays and short stories, had a short story of his about um, Chicago, where most of his stories are set, optioned for movies. And it went quite a ways down the road before before the movie didn't get made. But he was working with the producer, and he said to the producer... Okay, well, what could happen here? And the producer said, "Well, here's what could happen. Uh, you know how we have this big scene set in the in the uh, ambassador yeah. the Ambassador East Hotel." And 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 Joe said, "Yes." And he said, "Okay, well, if we get a budget of fifteen million dollars, we uh, take a hotel in downtown L.A. We 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 rent the lobby for five hours at, in the middle of the night. We try to guss it up to look like the Ambassador East, uh, and we shoot the scene as fast as possible. When we get out." If we get a budget of sixty million dollars, we rebuild the Ambassador East Hotel, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? And so that was his <laughs> explanation of of how it works in Hollywood. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, because if you can re- if you can get sixty million dollars, you want to rebuild the the Ambassador East Hotel just because you can. Just, just the, <laughs> the,
1: the just because you can. Um... That impulse is very, very strong, and we did a show just was on about a t- two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and we, you know, we were sitting in the room. Think of it, and you know, the, uh, my uh, partner you need to pull the over future. for that siren. No, it's not coming from me. It's just going oh, right by. Me. It's uh, Mount Sinai for you for life emergency medical services siren. It doesn't seem to be going that fast. It's just kind of ambling along. I think I'm probably going to get a cup of coffee. Um, Anyway, so we were sitting around the office, and we're like, "Well, what would it be? You know, we're doing a neighbor story. It'd be fun to do the neighbor story. And this, you know, one of the writers shares a personal story about a neighbor he had, and there's a tree, and the tree was technically the neighbor's, but all the branches were over on his side, and uh, the tree was dead, and just kind of dropping sap all the time, and and he just wanted the neighbor to cut down the tree. And so that, that's the, uh, that's the you know the genesis of the show, and we want the tree to come down and now we want the tree to come down on their above-ground pool, and we want it to be in a big splash at night because they have to do it stealthily. And, you know, we plan all of this, and it's fantastic. And then we I go, and I walk down the hall to our, our, our director, and I say, here's what we're thinking about. And you can see in their faces it's kind of like kidding me we have to take down a tree because when you when you shoot a tree coming down that means you got to have six trees right you got to have because you don't know you got to have backup trees and so we did it we did it we shot it two in the morning um and the tree came down and we when we when we brought the tree down we really only had one one shot at it the tree's got to come down right smack dab on the above ground pool the pool's got to smash water's got to go everywhere we really don't have time or another tree to do this and so we, uh, we took down the tree. We, you know, we, we, we basically had a pre-cut, and then we had a little explosive underneath the tree so it would go. And, um, and the tree landed in the pool. It was perfect. But in a feature film, there would be 17 trees. They'd be, you'd shoot it over a month. You'd be able to do it. You'd be able to get it. If you didn't get it the first time, you could get it the second or third or fourth time. You could always push it a week. Television, you've got to do it today.
2: Okay, well, now that we've we front loaded our, our wonderful, you know, uh, meaningless show business anecdotes, maybe we yeah. can get to some uh, more serious stuff, like the, really? like, the end, like the end of the Republic. <laughs> um, maybe not the end of the Republic. Some interesting things are about to start happening. Obviously, uh, President Trump has uh, has essentially uh, rescinded President Obama's executive orders and policies. Blocking the development of the uh, oil fields in, uh, you know, in the north, uh, the mid north and northwestern United States, and is going to allow the Dakota pipeline to go through, and um, some other stuff is about to happen. Uh, But it's been a really exhausting five or six days, or I found it exhausting, and I wonder whether this pace of relentless he said something crazy and then he tweets something crazy and then everybody goes he's crazy and this is all crazy and this is not normal and he's lying and then the everybody in the media tries to figure out new ways to say that he's lying and, and, and praises each other for the way Jake Tapper said that he was lying or the way the front page of the New York Times said he was lying and then Sean Spicer lies and Kellyanne Fitzpatrick lies and and he lies, and she lies, and and it's it's. Can it go on like this? Can we do this for four years? Aren't we all going to go completely <laughs>
0: stark raving insane? <laughs> well know, pretty... well, I, my favorite development is Dan Accra, Dan Rather of Fake but Accurate, is going after Kellyanne Conway for alternative facts, and this is like. Anti-matter universe, you know, <laughs> bizarro world. Spock fighting each other. I just don't get it. It's so, and it's and I agree. It's it's incredibly exhausting. I'm also, though, finding that the, the you'll you'll find this with a lot of conservatives, including friends of mine who I have a lot of respect for. There is this tendency to run to the safe harbor of media criticism because it's too. Uh, risky painful controversial dangerous to to criticize trump and so in the, instead people will make the entirely accurate but insufficient argument that the media uh, tolerated obama's lies for eight years didn't care about obama's lies and then get worked up about his fibs didn't get worked up about his narcissism and his ego because they liked the guy which is entirely true but it does not absolve Trump of some of the crazy things and crazy lies that he is telling and i find it, it it it's it's sort of corrupting on all sides the mainstream media is losing its mind it has no bearings and it has no credibility with the public and a lot of conservatives are just sort of like you know they're not necessarily defending Trump putting out lies but they are aiming almost all of their fire at the media for making a big deal about this when they didn't make a big deal about Obama, and this is this is this is how the center doesn't hold. This is how you you know you, the whole world just implodes on its own acuteness, and it really works. <laughs>
1: uh, I sort of agree with that I, I guess I, I I'm taking a purely practical point of view on this now because it's really the only way I can um, I can wake up in the morning and really you know <laughs> attack the day. But uh, w- one of the things that uh, uh, he's president now and we're not going to change and we can spin all sorts of fantasies if we want but he, he, this guy's president and it's most likely been president for four years and I, i'm okay with that now and i you know i but he's also gonna has an opportunity to do some really good stuff and there's a lot of things he's just done the past six days aside from tweeting and kellyanne and all sorts of things um that i think are fantastic and really exciting and great like i, I agree with wow, that we, we Guy doing that and exactly. so my, my, my fear is purely on the practical grounds, which I realize is crazy for me to be giving the Trump administration political advice. But at some point, all of the, 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 the media bashing from the conservatives is triumphant in triumph. They are triumphant supporters are triumphant and everybody's acting like this is a you know a new day he is a very weak president he's extremely not very popular the least popular president inaugurated ever he uh and when he tweets and battles with the press he's battling with the only major u.s institution less popular than him and it's foolish politically And, and and people seem to think that donald trump has rewritten every single rule of american politics he's written rewritten a lot of them but not every single one. The one he hasn't rewritten is that presidents need public support. They can't be down in 30 percent that long and get what they want. They just can't. And that is the law of physics. He hasn't repealed that. And I would like to see him doing all the things he's doing but pulling himself together. And the idea that we cheer, that the right and his side cheers all the time whenever he batches the press is just crazy because it diminishes him. He's not getting more popular with the broad base of American people who need to support his agenda. He's getting less popular, and that should be worrying. And instead, it's like everybody thought that this was a war against uh, CNN, which is bananas. Uh, you know,
2: the speaking of the sorts of things that, uh, as I mentioned, the the pipelines really being uh, the oil fields and the pipelines Fantastic. being the, the two very, you know, evident. Changes as well as things he's going to start talking about today about you know building building the wall um, interesting you know phenomenon that uh, six hundred and eighteen miles of fence have already been constructed we're t- talking about another thirteen hundred miles a lot of it in the middle of rivers, so it's not going to be so easy to put a wall in the middle of the river, and it's not clear exactly how uh, that's going to be paid for, since there is no money appropriated for it. Although a law I, you know, I, authorized its construction,
1: John, I think yes. we know who's going to pay for it.
2: Well, eventually, perhaps, perhaps even that magic can be affected, You know, as a kind yeah. of uh, as a kind of bribe. Um, but I'm more see I'm more interested in the phenomenon of. Uh, people like Lawrence tribe, the Harvard professor. Now I know, you know, a lot of us have very harsh feelings about Lawrence tribe as a totally politicized person who will, you know, at- attack any conservative or Republican for any reason. But, you know, tribe is one of those people who is behind this lawsuit that was filed Monday claiming that, you know, anybody renting a room at the Trump hotel, uh, On Pennsylvania Avenue is uh, any foreign entity, uh, anyone from another country is essentially invoking the emoluments (laughs) clause on bribery of the president. And um, if you read the stories, it turns out that they haven't found a single person withstanding to sue. That is to say, you know, if you're going to sue somebody on on grounds, uh, on these grounds, somebody actually has to claim – an actual harm is being done to them, yeah. right? So um, the stories, if you read them after 30 paragraphs, it says they're looking <laughs> for a and b <B&B> proprietor <laughs> in Washington, D.C., who will join the suit <laughs> so that he can say, well, you know, a room wasn't rented at my establishment because people are trying to curry favor with President Trump. Um, so we have...
1: And you're telling me that they can't find some, you know, bearded hippie couple somewhere who has a little B and B they rent out to people when they come for protests who won't sign on to that.
2: They're not. Oh yeah, because that. oh I yeah, could find oh,
1: one. know you one couldn't. In an hour.
2: You know why you couldn't? Because every one of those people is does has a hallway that's not up to code. Or has an uh, illegal alien helping to clean the room?
1: Well, Trump's going to de- uh, de- cure those cra- crazy regulations and get them into a position where they can sue Trump. There's there you your irony right there.
2: <laughs> there you go. I love,
1: the, I love the fact that we now get to say emoluments more.
2: Emoluments. Like when, I, I love a good emolument myself.
1: It was like when uh, when the uh, Russian thing broke. Everybody was talking about, uh, oh, they've got uh, they've got compromat on him. Yeah. Everybody acted like they they knew the word compromat. Uh, yeah. For for years and years, and not just to twelve hours ago.
2: I thought compote was that was that uh, a fruit was that sort of a dried fruit punch stew that my grandmother made. Um,
1: no, that's that's uh, that, stuff. that was that's weirdly
2: that's a molomant, A, <laughs> a or a compote, volume <laughs> a a yeah. compote. Okay. Right. Well, you know, my grandmother did make compotes, but what she didn't really do much was drink wine. But I think a lot of our people drink it's wine. Not what I hear. As, <laughs> trust me. Every now and then she had a rock and rye. But um, oh. if you like good wine but can't even spell sommelier, Rob, you know, you don't Rob. have to know how to spell sommelier
1: because – S-O-M-M-E-L.
0: Rob can spell sommelier. He has it written in three of his tattoos. Fair enough.
1: Exactly Right.
2: Even if you can spell sommelier, it's time to take the stress out of wine shopping and try Wink. The new way to get all the best wines perfectly matched to your palate. Wink, spelled W-I-N-C, works directly with winemakers and growers from all over the world to create delicious wine and deliver it right to your door. Wink's 100% satisfaction guarantee means if you don't like a bottle they send you, they'll replace it with a bottle you'll love, no questions asked. You don't just get sent random bottles. Wink is a personalized wine membership that recommends wine specifically for you. Based on the results of your palate profile quiz, you can rate all the wine you receive from Wink so they learn about your taste with every order and constantly personalize the wine they send. Sign up for Wink right now and gain immediate insider access to the best fine wine from all over the world. Find out for yourself why the hosts of Glop Culture and thousands of other satisfied wine lovers are raving about Wink. The best part Wink is offering you, Glop listener, you right there in your car at your desk. You know, while you're getting your massage, $20 off right now when you go to trywink.com slash glop. That's trywink.com slash glop. They'll even cover shipping. Think about that. You'll get fine wine personalized to your palate delivered right to your door. So trywink. Get $20 off complimentary shipping right now when you go to trywink.com slash glop. That's trywink, all one word, dot com slash glop. Our thanks to Wink for sponsoring the glop podcast
1: did you say people listening to this when they're getting their massage
2: why not they could be listening while they're getting a massage on their headphones instead of listening to some kenny g solo or some kind of you know weird new wave music
1: because you believe uh john that your voice our voices are soothing and relaxing and
0: (laughs) particularly my laugh (laughs) yeah. <laughs> yes um, yes hey, hey hey john did you say that your mom used to uh or grandmother used to drink rock and rye yes she drank rock and rye do you guys remember rock and rye rock and rye was rye
2: whiskey with rock sure. candy melted in it sure.
0: yeah you know that was for a while considered
2: a medicine well it, that's why she drank it i'm sure yeah Somebody told her it was a
0: medicine it's really not a medicine. I just want to. It's not that.
1: a medicine. Yeah, I mean, almost all uh, you know. Almost all those things. All the, all the original cocktails were originally medicine. The first cocktail they always they, people always say, legend has it, is the uh, Sazerac, which was uh, Antoine Peychaud cooked up uh, in New Orleans in eighteen something or other. I well, well,
0: that. well, and he knew how to spell sommelier. You know that he That's did. He sure.
1: did. Thought was that weird cube
0: thing in all like the Avengers movies. <laughs> you know. <sighs> Like, you know, they I do not even know how to
1: respond to that. It's so horrible. <laughs> so
0: they, they were called medicinal,
1: right? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the bitters are medicinal. Amaro, an Amaro from, from Italy, They there's sort of like a bitter that's uh, always considered medicinal. You drink it after your after your meal. And there's like, uh, the French have it too. They they drink, there's a couple things they drink. One of them is they drink mar, which is this really, really, really strong, uh, I don't know if it's distilled or not. I think it might be distilled. And it's made from the, the, the pressing of all the stems and the uh, skins of wine. So it's incredibly tannic, tannic and bitter, uh, and it can be very tasty. And sometimes they'll old French restaurants, they'll pour it in, pour, give you a little glass, and they pour it right into your espresso cup. after you've had your coffee, the last thing you'll have is a mar.
2: Boy, that sounds
1: disgusting. It's actually really good. But then okay. again, you know, I, I know how to spell sommelier. I know
2: you do. And, uh, you know, but it is true, like all these things – that we now think of as being unbelievably unhealthy and terrible you know, additions and reasons that Americans are obese and have too much diabetes and everything were all started as health foods. you That's know, true. Doc- Dr. Kellogg's cereals. Right,
3: you know, right.
2: Uh, Coca- Graham crackers. Coca-Cola. Yeah, they, these were all like health products, the Dr.
0: Well, Graham's cracker. Remember, that they even sold some versions of cigarettes as health products. Um, wasn't that a famous guy who, went on stage talking about how he was some like Carlton's or something, which my dad smoked. And he said there was just enough flavor in it um, to keep him from getting a hernia. Um, trying to get it out. <laughs> um, but uh, some famous guy walked on stage, said he loved these. Cig- I think it was cigarettes and then walked backstage and dropped dead. Am I misremembering that? No, but yeah. no, but, uh, but it's too no, but good. It to check. good. It
3: yeah.
1: Good. My favorite really is like, had, you know, my favorite strike. is
0: right. Go right. Sorry. those, you can find them on YouTube when people today talk about, oh, the corrupting of the news media by corporate advertising and corporate right. interests. You watch those like Harry Reasoner interviewing like Utant or something <laughs> um, and and he'll, he'll say, I want to get back to the, tro- the situation in Biafra in just a moment and then he'll switch cameras and talk straight to the camera and say, but first – I want to talk about Lucky Strike cigarettes. Right. It's, right. Yeah. When it's, it's, it's like we're not preparing for an interview like this, you know, right. and it goes on, you know.
1: Exactly. And uh, <laughs> and uh, President Kennedy will speak with uh, Chairman Khrushchev in the morning. You know, folks, when people ask me they say, "Harry, what's your favorite cigarette?" I always say, uh, "Carlton's, that's right, Carlton's. <laughs> Carlton's is the finest tobacco. Less throat irritation. Enjoy <laughs> a soothing Carlton now." And now, you know, it turns right. Submit, it's like all day in radio, it's fantastic.
2: Yeah, they used to have doctors doing cigarette commercials. Yeah, that was also the great, you know, as with a with that thing on their
1: head, right? That little lampy. Yeah. As a
2: doctor, thing. I believe the filter on the Marlboro is really going to make a <laughs> very big difference in your <laughs> enjoyment and your life. Right. So, so this is uh, this is the uh, many some of the many cultural changes that we can uh, we can celebrate as we uh, as our country well, goes down.
1: Well, you know, it's not going down the tubes. Come on. You it's, really think so?
2: Okay, who thinks the country is going down the tubes? Here's why I think the country is going down the tubes. So slowly, and it's not like every other country in the world isn't going down the tubes. So maybe all right. we're just talking about a you've, general you've set the table now for your remarks global, global decline. But here all all I all I'm saying is that we are um, we are living we are living at a time in which the uh, Pop culture is producing, you know, these kind of two levels of content, like exciting, new, brash, wonderful, you know, television. And, you know, this gigantic flow of porn into everybody's computer at the same time. It is like this total Mm. you know, this classic What's the passive
1: voice there I'm I'm detecting? A (laughs) flow of porn into your computer, like... You know, literally, you have to. You have to put in a URL. You have to. The computer, if you don't touch it, doesn't do anything. You have to say, "Hey, computer," "Hey, Alexa," or whatever it is. So that,
2: so that would explain. That would explain, like, why my twelve-year-old daughter came across some kind of hardcore porn scene.
0: Yeah, you know? no. I mean, Rob, it's actually. I mean, <laughs> I. I, 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 I Let's put it this way: you don't have to put in a URL to find porn you out. don't um <laughs> well, just yesterday i was trying to find i was at a pizza place uh with my daughter and i was trying to find the link for the my la times column to post on twitter and i don't know what happened all of a sudden i'm just bombarded with these pop-up things on my phone and this pizza place with all these kids of this uh much raunchier version of something called something swipe and uh and like my, I remember when my daughter was little, I would play – I tried to find, uh, like, the theme song to the old Transformers cartoon for her to play it. Oh, sure. And they're jackasses. Take the time to wait, like, 30, 40 seconds into kids' cartoons on YouTube to then dub in or put in horrific language or horrific images and all this kind of stuff because they think it's funny. There are, you know, there are links all – if you do Google image searches, the second you go past, like, the first page or two of almost any, like, woman, they start having these Photoshop naked pictures. It's a really bad environment for kids out there. And I think it, it, the stress it causes parents to think that you can't leave these kids unattended <laughs> on the woman is a much bigger deal than people give it credit for, I think.
1: Well, it certainly is bigger than I'd give it credit for if that's what's going yeah. on, although I suspect that the solution is, as with everything, a technological solution – which is yeah, a little, you know,
0: but you know, I mean, children. Very piece for just real quickly. Nick Chilton and I wrote a piece for National Review several years ago, proposing essentially a walled-off uh, children's internet. Right, right. That you would have hard drive that you would have for kids' computers, kids' iPads. You could make it that you could not get outside mm-hmm. the of that internet of that sort of kids' net. And it could be like dot .kids would be the URL. And parents would eat it up. Corporate America would eat it up. Most websites could just mirror on it. But you would just have zero porn, zero hardcore stuff. And I think it would be a great idea. And I know it's gone someplace in Congress, but it just never seems to have materialized. Anyway, I'm done.
1: Maybe under, maybe under President Trump it will. Right. Because there, there are pictures readily available of our First Lady.
0: And then uh, die, the not be able to run his uh, you know Dateline NBC stuff, but that's right. okay. you
2: know, exactly. you know. But uh, speaking, you just you, thinking about you know President Trump and things that have happened and all this sort of madness surrounding him. So, Trump uh, last night sends out this tweet about how uh, if the carnage, uh, the murders are not stopped in Chicago, he's going to send in the Feds. Right? So he says. Do something about the carnage in Chicago. I'm going to send in the feds. Now, God knows what that means. It doesn't mean anything. There is no, you know, there is no sort of federal police force that can be sent in like that. It doesn't exist. You can't send in the military because that violates the Posse Comitatus Act. But
1: Matt Continental – Is that an emolument? Is the Posse Comitatus also an emolument? It's it's not because
2: it it, it postdates the emoluments clause. Yeah, it's a
1: compromise. It's a
2: compromise of the, yes, of the emolument, really. Um, But Matt Cottenay made a point this morning, which was this. So while everybody is screaming and yelling because everything that Trump does is evil and terrible and horrible, Matt says, I, for one, like the fact that our president cares about the murder rate in Chicago. Now think about that for a minute, because this really is an interesting point, which is, Everything that he says and does can't be monstrous. I mean, again, no one, right. no one, no one can look at us and say that we weren't insufficiently critical of <laughs> Trump over the last 18 months, right? But he says something's got to be done about Chicago. I'm the president. I'll try to do something if Rahm Emanuel doesn't do something. The response to this by the mainstream media is to act as though he is a psychotic. right? Whereas to pretend... That, a, that the second largest or the third largest city in the United States being totally out of control in terms of violence is not a fit subject for the President to take up and to challenge its leadership to do something about when it's now been going on for four years under right. five years under Rahm Emanuel, who has literally done nothing except you know sort of empower bad cops from what we can tell.
1: And 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 the entire issue was swept under the rug and never touched on by the president. Exactly. Right. I mean, so you, you know when you're making a, when you're so, making a movie or something and you have a picture of a person and you want to say, you want to show that person is evil, you just play spooky music while they're doing their thing. You know, it, it doesn't really matter. Like a guy shaving in the mirror or somebody uh, making a cup of coffee, if you put enough spooky music in it or even a weird camera angle or a strange dolly zoom, everything gets distorted. And I, I sense—I I, I tend to think that the, the anti-Trump crowd, the progressives or the liberal media, whatever you want to call them, every single thing he does, they hear spooky music. Right. Every time he walks along the portico, to them it's a dolly zoom and a horror show. And they just have to be true even if Donald Trump says they're true. And they just don't quite get that yet. And it's going to be a very long four years for them.
2: Yeah, and and the problem there is that um, that's the sort of thing that he doesn't even have to follow up on to make the kind of general point to the American people that he cares about the sorts of things that they care about, like order, like order in the streets, like the idea that, you know, murderers shouldn't be running around free and getting away with it, like – like maybe people in the inner somebody even yeah. in this case, despite you know how he's such an awful racist and everything, that you know people in the inner city shouldn't be living there, prey to the you know depredations so, of gangs and so. How and is the world gangs. going to hell
1: then? How is the world going to hell? Help me out. You're just well, you're, you're you're painting an optimistic picture of an activist uh, president.
2: Well, it's going to hell because the uh, because he's nuts. The, because, because that's what we deserve. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Be- because because of this weekend's now a uh, timeless phrase from Jonas and my old friend kelly and fitzpatrick conway that sean spicer and you know claiming that the inaugural was the largest inaugural in american history was simply presenting a bunch of alternative facts and the simple fact of the matter is she's the counselor to the president She just said the most Orwellian thing that has probably ever been said in American public life, and that's bad. And I don't care whether you know Kellyanne's an old friend of mine, and I would be happy to tell her to her face that what she has done has been to disgrace the English language and to make a mockery out of the entire, you know, governing purpose of conservatism uh for the last, you know, since Burke.
0: Alternative facts. Well, Uh, come on.
1: Are we we overreacting?
0: So I, I I I generally agree with John that there is something grotesque when conservatives buy into the language, the sort of postmodern language of fake but accurate, and you know the you know all this postmodern nonsense that the left has been doing for a long time because that makes it a sort of bipartisan surrender to. To zero standards and nihilism and all that kind of stuff, but as a matter of practical politics, the thing that infuriates me about the the alternative facts and all of this stuff and Spicer going out there and you know basically you know looking like it was either go out there and lie from the podium or have a half starved Wolverine sewn into his belly. Um, <laughs> uh, the thing that that really sort of bothers me about it is. This administration burned I mean like burned like like the Joker in the dark night pouring gasoline on a huge pile of money, burned political capital yeah. to defend friggin' crowd size. If they had thrown alternative facts into the mainstream to get a Supreme Court justice on, or to repeal Obamacare, or to lower cat ta- taxes, great. But what I what bothers me about this episode is that it portends that the yeah. place where this administration will be most forced, you know, sort of like soldiers in World War 1 forced to go over the top at the blow of the whistle and charge a gatling gun, the place where these guys will be forced to to, to set fire to their integrity won't be for Trump's agenda, it'll be for Trump's ego. And e- his ego gets us nowhere. You know, if if they were doing this for the good stuff, okay, I mean it, I'd rather they not lie and do these silly spin stuff. But at least that's to advance an agenda. The problem is, is that it's, it, Trump's ego is the is the is the master drummer that sets the tone for this entire administration, and that's going to get really old after four years. Right.
1: And the other, yeah, it's like it reminded me of that moment because he was so sweaty. Sean Spicer was such a sweaty. <clears throat> it was like probably the sweatiest performance. In American politics, recent American politics, and he looked like the guy. <clears throat> excuse me, who had just been yelled at by his boss, and now he's going to come out to everybody else. He's going to yell at them too. You know, it's the guy who just gotten just chewed out horribly by his psychotic boss, and now he's there and he's like yelling at a secretary, like, "Yeah, yeah, you know, you're using the wrong software, and then you better erase <laughs> these paperclips better." and You're you know, that guy. He just looked furious for because he'd been yelled at and. It all seems so amateur hour. I guess that's one of the things, The right. only thing I, know. I mean, I, I get it. Yeah, alternative facts is bad, whatever. But, but what really bugs me about it is just the amateur hour quality, the kind of Keystone Cops quality of it, and the idea that yeah, we showed the press that, and like, well, that's not very. That's not a very efficient use of your time.
2: Well, you know, the other thing is to, to sort of second Jonah's point here. The Trump needs to know honestly where he stands with the american people that is to say he's coming into office not having won the popular vote with 46 percent of the vote right so right. That, that means so that's that illegal
0: aliens illegal voters
2: right but you, that means you, you, but again that is that's a fool's errand on his part to begin with because he needs to build his support
1: but he, I, I know it's not
2: obama was in a position where he won 54 percent of the vote in 2008 and he was able to lose four million voters and still win again in 2012,
1: right? Right, Trump, right.
2: Trump has to go from here up,
1: but in don't order you think to I win mean, re-election. I, I agree with you on that. I, 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 on, a, on, if I was giving Trump political advice, but isn't the the subwoofer here or the subtext here the throbbing pulse of American conservatism that what is unspoken, which is that and if he really knew how unpopular some conservative policies are, he wouldn't be for them. So let's make sure he doesn't find that out. <laughs> let's make sure that he thinks that that mall was thronged with people so that they don't we, – we don't hear about um, right-to-life issues. We don't hear any pushback on things that you know conservatives believe in really kind of in our heart of hearts and say, well, we're not going to get that because that's kind of unpopular. And the idea is to kind of ram everything through um, and then and then it, and then use the Trump popularity as the shell or the husk or the vehicle by which we get a lot of stuff done and then sort of leave him by the side of the road when people decide to hate him. I mean, isn't that well, – isn't very, that the Ryan strategy?
2: That is a very complicated thing, and I just don't think that you trick the leader into thinking that – Everybody is cheering for him so that he'll do unpopular things that you want him to do. Um, you know, really? He, I don't that, know. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But that
1: what, I, seems like that that's
2: that could be. I, mean, I don't know.
1: If you, if you listen to the Nixon tapes, that's what Henry Kissinger did for almost 18 months.
2: Right.
1: <laughs> well, you know what?
2: Uh, you know what? You know what Nixon needed, Rob, in 1960. Wait, wait. What the guess. reasons that he lost? What?
1: It was not a good night's sleep.
2: We he needed that. a shave.
1: A shave. Uh, oh that's right. yes. oh
2: Austin, man. Richard Nixon needed a shave. The man grew a five o'clock shadow by ten o'clock in the morning and he had to shave twice a day. And you know what would have been really great if he could have had it and could have changed the course of American history? Harry Shave. Harry Shave, because he used the razor so much. If he'd had a better razor system at a better price, who knows? What could have happened in American history? Because, you know, for decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and wreaked <laughs> immense at the expense of their consumers like Richard Nixon. So Jeff and Andy, these two ordinary guys fed up with getting ripped off, started Harry's to fix shaving, knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And by taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at half the price. Just two bucks a blade compared to the four more you'll pay at the drugstore. They include everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, a weighted ergonomic handle, five precision engineer blades with lubricating strip, trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, travel blade cover. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their shave set for free. You heard that right. Just cover shipping when you sign up. Plus, as a special offer for fans of GLOP, go to harrys.com right now and enter code GLOP at checkout. To get a post-shave balm, also free. That's harrys.com, Code Glop. Our thanks to Harrys for sponsoring the Glop podcast. Now, how is that for a, that? You got to give me credit there on the on the transition. I that was that. not bad. That was <laughs> that not bad. bad. Thanks very much. Totally improved, as you know.
1: And also, I, it also yes. spun me into that into you know incredibly unproductive but incredibly seductive uh, thought pattern, which is what if. President Nixon takes office in
2: 1961. Wow. That is very interesting. Well, I think probably President Nixon takes office in 1961, and in policy terms, a lot of the same things happen. We go into Vietnam.
1: Right. uh, But no Cuban Missile Crisis, right? I think it's fair to say no Cuban Missile Crisis.
2: Probably no Cuban Missile Crisis because they're too scared of him. No Kennedy Assassination. No Kennedy assassination. Well,
1: uh, right. Uh, so, so, that, so if you listen to me, that, that means the nation will have, re- will have retained its innocence because, as we all know, right. that was the day that, the, that America lost its innocence.
2: Right. Well, um, you know, uh, there is a, a fantastic story about Nixon in 72 that Leonard Garment uh, used to tell, which would suggest that Nixon would have been self-destructive no matter what time he had become president when, you know, he won this gigantic victory, one the largest landslide in American history up to the time. And he'd gone from 43% in 68 to 62% in 72. He'd won, you know, 48 states or 47 states, something like that. It was just an insane 525 electoral votes. It was just a colossal victory. And he's flying back from California to Washington. It's the middle of the night on the plane. He's got a scotch in his hand. He looks over at Len and he says... Now we'll get the bastards. That was how he thought the night that he, his entire life, had been justified. That he had, that he had, had the, one of the great political triumphs of American history was now we can go get him. And you can see how yeah. that guy goes from that height to resigning. You know, what was it like twenty months later?
0: Well, but you know, it's interesting because I, I see so many similarities uh, between Trump and Nixon um some of them are just in terms of the people he hangs has around him the rhetoric yeah. and, you know the silent majority stuff i mean nixon was a brilliant brilliant guy you couldn't be that uncharismatic and be that successful <laughs> oh, sure. in politics right but um but one of the things i think psychologically they both have in common is this this profound insecurity right i mean this unbelievable need for respect and there's something about people who need respect that don't get it you know because the desire the need the the burning need for it is a signal to people and it turns people off and like with trump you know I, i'm kind of reminded i had a really good friend in the in the 90s uh young uh, a woman who was really sort of tart mouthed and she would whenever she would see a middle-aged guy in a ridiculous like souped up trans am walking around as like a midlife crisis car or whatever or or basically anybody driving, I remember, she would just yell at the top of her lungs, sorry about your penis. And um, <laughs> and I, when I hear Trump talk about the crowd size stuff or not being able yeah. to let go of this illegal voter thing, um, or like even in that debate where he just had to go back and talk about his hands not being representative of his endowment, there is this thing that he can't let this stuff go. And you read that Washington Post piece this week and it's very much a sort of he, – he's incredibly frustrated that he keeps accomplishing these things and he still doesn't get the respect that he demands. The other thing though, which John reminded me of, um, Leonard Garment also used to do this great impersonation of Nixon haranguing Henry Kissinger and he would say things like, um, Henry, Henry, I want you to bomb – Hanoi tomorrow. I'm not kidding. I want it level, and Kissinger would be like, "Yes, Mr. President, of course, Mr. President." And he was like, "Henry, I'm not kidding. This is not. You know, don't tell me you're going to do something and then not do it." And Kissinger goes, oh, "Of course, Mr. President." He says, "Henry, I want to wake up in the morning and I want to see the Washington Post front page say Nixon reduces Hanoi to rubble." And then says, "Of course, right away, Mr. President. I'm working on it, Mr. President." And and then Kissinger wouldn't do anything. And imagine if Nixon in one of those moods had Twitter. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And that's what worries me a lot about Trump is this sort of like the need for respect. The, the You know, he, he's ordering a federal investigation into voter fraud purely as an extension of his need to sort of bomb his self-esteem. And um, that's – it's a waste of resources. It's kind of outrageous, but you know what harm will be done. Um, you can think of all sorts of scenarios where the fear of losing face or losing respect on the international stage could get us in a lot of trouble. And nah, really? <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 well, there's, there's well no, uh, you know, what I, it's it's funny because the the, the, F, the uh, voter fraud investigation has a familiar pattern, which is these: "Hey, listen." terrible problem in this country as you know there's three million uh whatever it is two million three million votes i lost um and then the not the, to which the next logical follow-up is well you better sure that seems terrible you know you got to do something about it to which the, the right response is shut up right, right. shut up <laughs> but unfortunately when you're president and say oh yeah i gotta get on that right away and then you actually do have to bomb hanoi um you know meaning you have to Uh, have an FBI investigation to to prove that what you insist happened did not happen. Um, Yeah. I mean, I also feel like, I mean, just to bring it to a more contemporary, uh, you know, connect with the youth a little bit more than our current analogies or comparisons. I also think there's a lot about this guy. That's the down market talk radio version of the NPR version. uh, Obama, the kind of obsessed with self-justification uh, convinced that your knowledge is superior, um, a kind of contempt for contradiction, but then this kind of weird neediness, you know, the kind of need for adulation and for to be right all the time. I mean, there is this kind of psychology. I don't think it's been in every president. I don't think it was in George W. I don't think it was in Clinton. It certainly wasn't in Clinton. It definitely wasn't in Reagan, of the need to be the smartest, best, you know, alpha male in the room and and to be... Uh, adored and respected and and feared. I mean, there's something very strange about it, um, in and how bald it is. And I think we saw it. I mean, I mean, I certainly saw it in Obama as well. Am I the only one?
2: I, I don't think that that's the right. I don't think his analogy to the, Obama had a different. Obama came with this astounding level of self-regard would be my way of looking at it. And that, and that everything that did not every piece of available evidence that suggested that his self-regard might be harming him or doing him damage was something that was, or, or that was leading to policies that were doing him damage was to be disregarded. Whereas if you take somebody like Clinton Clinton, had an extraordinarily cold eye toward himself, not his personal personal peccadillos, but politically, right. so that he could say, "Okay, those plays didn't work. It's the end of the first half, and I'm gonna, we're going to lose this game. What plays will work from here?" You know, right. and, that, and that takes <clears throat> a kind of um, cold eye distance from your from yourself that maybe is learned or maybe isn't really real, but I think is, was very much a part of him. And the thing about Obama is that I got a gift, Harry, you know, I was always made to feel like I was something very special. I've always been something very special. So when people say, you know, Mr. President, you know, 70% of the public doesn't like Obamacare. You're like, yeah, they do. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm LeBron baby. I'm LeBron. Lebron, Exactly. So, and that, that's a, that's a, I think, I think Trump in that sense really is much more analogous to Nixon in the way that in the way that Jonas says, and sometimes that can be that's a real spur to achievement. Obviously, it's a huge spur to achievement. The question is, what happens when you get there? Right, and and it turns out that 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 it's not a poultice that winning doesn't actually am- provide. Is it an emolument? It should, a it, should a it,
1: mo- an it should be. It should be a
2: It should be a mollifying, but it should be mollifying, but it doesn't a work. It's, it's not not poultice. Work. I don't think I've heard the it's word not a poultice. poultice. It's not a poultice for the poultice.
1: I think it's I once read uh, read a, like a I was in some some like you know big Sur or something in some new age bookstore there, and I read a book on witchcraft, and it was all about poultices. You need a poultice for that for this are, or that. Uh, Poultices are, are good. A little sachet of something, and you put it on your chest. I need a poultice, as you can hear. I got a cold. I know. Is it's that good. how you pronounce sachet? It's sachet. S a c h e t. What do you say?
0: I don't
2: think I've ever said it out loud, so I'm yeah. Not me just- either. It's hard. It's like one of those things where, when you're a kid, you say macabre, because <laughs> you know you've only ever seen,
1: you've only ever <laughs> seen
2: the word macabre in you know in, in yeah. print or you know
1: what? when when as a kid were you moved to use the word macabre. I don't think I I, th- I, 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 I would have you know, said scary. I would have said scary, I'm sorry. I don't know. It was some
2: or you know, every kid has one, you know, bookish kid has some word like that that they completely because yeah. Yeah. how how would
0: they know how to pronounce it? Sure. But right.
2: uh, pop was a particularly good one because it really it really makes no sense.
0: I always uh, but, say, I always but, thought it was sachet. Like sort for satchel I or guess I thought that it was no. sachet. It I mean it's a French word. Sachet is, sachet is sort of like your swanning, right? Your favorite well, one. You yet? pronounce the name of the actor who played Poirot so brilliantly, uh,
2: David Suchet or David Suchet?
1: I, I have no idea, but oh, I don't sachet. give shit. But sachet sachet is a is a is a French word.
2: It's like cachet. It like rhymes yeah. with cachet. You're yeah. saying.
1: And you know what else, guys? But we say clear the cash, right? You know, it's a cash right. of uh, of money, but as a cachet is the noun or the some other means. The, you know what has cachet? The idea.
2: You know what has cachet today in 2017? HelloFresh. Sure. HelloFresh wants to change the way people eat forever. They believe everyone deserves honest, natural, healthy, delicious food. Whether you're a busy professional couple, a large family running at a breakneck pace, or someone who simply wants to start cooking more, HelloFresh makes it easier, tastier, and healthier than ever to enjoy the experience of cooking new recipes and eating together at home. It's the meal delivery kit service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient, creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions each week, designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone, from novices to seasoned home cooks, short on time. It sources the freshest ingredients, measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. They employ a full-time registered dietitian on staff who reviews each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced, and they currently offer customers a classic Box or veggie box, and we'll soon be launching a family box. Customers can offer three, four, or five different meals per week designed for either two or four people, all delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box. And here's a special offer for listeners of the Glop Podcast for $35 off your first week of deliveries. Visit HelloFresh.com and enter Glop Culture 35. All one word when you subscribe. That's Glop Culture 35. The 35, of course pointing to the $35 off your first week of deliveries. HelloFresh.com and enter GLOPCULTURE35 <clears> at the coupon <throat> code when you subscribe. And someone, please <laughs> give Rob a cough drop.
1: Oh, yes. We thank you
2: for sponsoring the GLOP podcast. Hey, uh, hey Rob? There's a
1: cough button. I, it's a cough button, and I just don't use it. Yes. Yeah.
2: Sashay. You were right. Oh. oh. There there's a, the deployment... Of Google Voice yeah. or whatever, that is. that's great. Sashay, sashay. I, uh,
0: so now we know. Yeah, a little part of me died finding this out because I I gotta go go back and reread the Lord of the Rings, re- pronouncing the word correctly in my mind. <laughs> oh yeah, like a
1: part, uh, like a part I of you died, uh, of <laughs> like like a, really like a part of you died thinking you have to go back and re- reread the Lord of the Rings. That'd be like uh, your birthday.
2: So um. I have to admit – so yesterday the Oscar nominations came out, and I have to admit to a a degree of puzzlement, which is to say that while I'm a great admirer of the film La La Land, and I am, the fact that it is tied All About Eve and Titanic for the most number of nominations any picture has ever gotten strikes me as bizarre. It is a small – one of the things that is wonderful about it is that it is a small, Uh intimate little picture – Right. It is not. It is not a you know mammoth production, uh, right. you know, which no expense was spared, and which all you know and, and which that's let lets out all the stops. It's a fragile story about two people and ambition and Hollywood, and there is something untoward about the fact that something that you know it's in some ways it's very ambitious and in other ways it's a very limited. You know, yes. Yeah. What,
1: what, what, what baffles you about it? I don't understand what's baffling about it. It is a movie about show business, it, and it is running for an award that is given out by people who are in show business. That, because, that it's like it's if, like, like, if you if you play a mentally impaired person, you're going to get an Oscar nom. If you make a movie about show business, you're going to get an Oscar nom. It's a movie about show business. I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm really. I'm so, not even trying to be funny. I'm really. No, it's really it's true. I knew it was gonna get nine Oscar nominations when I heard that it was about show business.
2: No, if it had gotten nine, I wouldn't be saying anything. It's the fact that it got fourteen. Nah. That, you know, it got costumes when sure. you know basically there are two characters in the whole movie. If and
3: it got char- costumes. wait, but
1: two characters who do what? Uh who are I'm in show, dance. Who are in well, show business. Okay. Well and, one's and, in show business. That's
2: right. Okay. I'm just saying, so we can move on, because it's clearly a boring topic.
0: Well, but I'll just theory, because I keep hearing this from everybody. You know, Sunny Bunch, you guys, that movies about Hollywood, about show business, always get these awards and all that kind of stuff. How come The Big Picture didn't get a whole bunch of awards, or did it? Because I actually like that movie. Uh,
1: well, well, but, well, we're not a- saying a- the movies a- are good. It didn't do well, and it, it, it's a satire. It's satire doesn't do well, I see. Uh, in general.
0: Yeah, that's but, be earnest.
1: Yeah, So, as, as um, George S. Kaufman said to somebody, satire is what closes on Saturday night. Right. People don't like satire, they like comedy. Right. Okay, the, the, are, yeah.
2: the reason that we say this is that in the last, you know, seven years, this will be, assuming that it wins, it'll be the third best picture in seven years to be about the movie industry in some fashion or other. One was Argo, which of course is about the making of a fake movie. Sure. an effort to rescue the Iranian hostages and then the second which is which will go down in history as one of the most baffling best pictures ever is the French silent film the artist
1: <laughs> I love that movie
2: which I liked but you know is basically about how you know it's basically a kind of remake of 2 minutes out of singing in the rain about how it was really hard for a guy when silent pictures went to talkies and he had a thick french accent Right. And that's basically what the movie's about. It's all the horror of there being talking pictures when you have a thick French accent. And uh, even though the movie itself is silent. It's a very peculiar little movie, brilliantly done, but kind of, you know, so only Hollywood, you know, under other circumstances in a different year and a different time, that movie might not have even gotten a release. You know, but people I mean?
1: look people like seeing themselves on screen. They oh, like it. They they like seeing their lives on screen, and if you give those people the right and the ability to give a fancy award, they'll do it. I mean, years ago uh, during sweeps week, uh, for for you know, sweeps week was the when um, all of the networks used to like put in their best programming, their most. Crowd-pleasing programming to get the number up because the Nielsen would write uh, what they call the Nielsen book, the quarterly book, based on you know, the average of a quarter. And Sweeps Week was a way to pump up the average. And all it really did was have a halo effect on your local stations. And if you're old enough, you remember when local TV news, when anybody watched local TV news, but also when local TV news would be obsessed for that week during Sweeps Week with the most salacious topics. it would be like, is there a child molester in your neighborhood? um is what's in your refrigerator going to kill you a yeah. uh, five-part series channel seven all this alarmist stuff and they did all that stuff and channel seven in la you know cracked the code they simply had a five-part series on the week saying it sweeps week and everyone is trying to get your attention who are these nielsen families we'll meet some of them tonight and they did a five-part series on local Nielsen families, and guess what happened? All the local Nielsen families tuned in, and the uh, because that's how uh, Nielsen gets its ratings. That's the sample they take. It you know that 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 week the that Channel Seven got like a ninety-nine share. It's brilliant. Right? Yeah, it's brilliant. And Nielsen, of course, threw the book out because they you know obviously been distorted. But the point is that people like watching themselves. And if you make a movie about show business, people in show business will say, that's so me. That's so – I mean I do not do films. I don't do silent films. I'm not French. But I saw the artist and I thought, ah, man, that's me right there.
2: <laughs> so, well, so there are nine uh, Best Picture nominees. Um, and I think, you know, uh, so they're re- relatively, you know, creditable. I mean, Hell or High Water is a good movie, though, like in the 1970s, it would just have been a bit of B movie. Arrival is a very good movie, very good science fiction movie, uh, which is about sort of time travel in the end. Manchester by the Sea is the most depressing movie ever made. Fences is a creditable transcription of a really great play, it doesn't work quite as well on screen. And then, of course, there is the final most interesting thing, which are, which are the nominations for Hacksaw Ridge and its director, Mel Gibson. Yeah, who, yeah. If you had said 10 years ago when Mel Gibson was ranting and screaming about how the Jews control the world and, you know, complaining that cops, you know, arresting him for no reason and being totally psychotic, uh, that he would sort of end up again, you know, in, in Oscar's warm embrace. I think everybody <clears throat> would have thought you were, were crazy.
1: I love that. That's a very elegant way to put it. Oscar's warm embrace, Lady Oscar embraces the yeah. Um, but but what's interesting about it is that the very fact that he is um, the very fact that he is nominated today or yesterday shows that he was wrong about the Jews. <laughs> Well, I mean, I
0: like that. I thought that you was. Should, good point. You should
2: go. Uh, you should go uh, interview him on that and see if he'll if he'll agree. Be, uh, I
1: would, yeah would yeah hold listen, on? I
2: I haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge. I will say that I think that Mel Gibson is an extraordinarily talented director. I mean, I think that uh, uh, Braveheart, The Passion of the Christ, and Apocalypto are three remarkably well directed movies. Apocalypto may be the most. Impressive as it's pretty much almost a silent film told yeah. almost entirely, you know, uh, as this kind of you know insane chase of this one guy through a pre-Columbian horror scape, you know, uh, in uh, in Central America, and it is it is really you know dazzling. And I, as I say, I haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge, but I I can't imagine that it you know it doesn't have some of the same propulsive qualities but you know that said um it's still a pretty amazing thing that he got nominated uh because you know you don't have to nominate him it could there were other people who were you know martin scorsese was blanked and the guy who directed hell or high water david mckenzie who did a really spectacular job was blanked
0: so there we are but yeah i haven't seen a lot of them i saw hell or high water which i liked a lot but the economics of it which is why I think Hollywood likes it so much. Are really ridiculously stupid, um, but other than that, I haven't. You know, I've, I can't. I don't think I've seen any of these movies, or very few of them. I'm not, a lot of them I don't want to see. Like you could not drag me to see Manchester by the Sea, um, unless you threatened to remove a significant body part of mine.
2: It was. It was. Yeah. It was. It was among, among the most. Depressing experience. Really? That, that was two hours of unrelieved, depressing gloom. And I will not see Lion, which is a movie that people love, and which yeah, no don't see it. All these nominations, don't see it because you know it's a movie about a five-year-old, a true story about a five-year-old kid who ends up on a train, a thousand miles away from home, has no idea how to get back to home, and ends up getting mo- adopted. By another fan, I mean it's like by
1: Nicole Kidman. I mean, to be fair, it's Nicole Kidman. But okay. yes, I, but is I know you. Nicole have Kidman
2: done. with it Botox a, it, or without Botox? It,
1: well, it's the, it's the recent Nicole Kidman. Uh, I will, um, I will tell you, as I, as I know you, that you should not see this movie. But it is incredibly sad, incredibly beautiful. Um, but I, can we just go back to Mel Gibson for one minute? Yeah. Um, the, the, the most interesting thing about Mel Gibson is that he uh, people say, "Oh, Hollywood has forgiven him." Well, his, you know, his director class forgave him, and the the people who make movies forgave him but um, what 's the most interesting that's happened in the past ten years is that he's able to raise a lot of money uh, from other sources he doesn 't have to get a studio to greenlight his pictures he can go and make a movie um, he, he He is a bankable director he 's an idiosyncratic one he makes these weirdo movies and uh, you know if anybody was betting whether um, uh, 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 the Passion of the Christ was going to do well. They would have bet against it. It was a huge hit. Uh, Apocalypto was a big hit. I mean this guy makes weirdo offbeat movies and he does it responsibly and he's able to go back to investors several times and get the money. He doesn't need to make a studio picture. It, in a way, it's a sign of like how Hollywood has changed since when, when it, his first outburst. The idea was, well, the system will read him out of the business. The system will – Squeeze him out. And, well it
2: did, it did kind yeah. of as an actor. It did kind of as an actor. And he remember the Passion of the Christ, one of the things that's so astounding about it is that he paid for it himself. Right. He paid it cost thirty million dollars. He paid for it himself. He made three hundred and seventy five million dollars off the Passion of the Christ. Went his pocket.
1: Right, but he didn't have to go. That you couldn't by the by the time he had exploded on the outside moon shadows in Malibu, or that audio tape of him screaming at his uh, uh, girlfriend. By the time that was all out, he the business had changed significantly, so that there were five or six or ten or twenty or fifty different lines, financing lines, he could approach to make a movie, the movie he w- wants to make. So right. It's not so much that Hollywood changed. It's it's not so much that people forgave him. It's just that the the business changed radically in a very short amount of time. I
0: also got the impression um, that he didn't stop acting and stuff. He just kind of did what we would have called 20 years ago straight-to-VHS movies or straight-to-video movies, right? Because I've watched a couple movies that he's made on Netflix that I know were never in a theater near me and i was wonder i always wondered is like was he building was he was he doing that as a model to get back into the good graces of hollywood or or was it just some alternative uh business model but the i saw him do a, i can i saw him in a or is he, in a mexican prison i saw uh, some other one i mean there's he's been doing movies they just haven't like been on the radar in the way that uh yeah, no. I mean, noticed. he has only starred
2: since since his troubles. Uh, he was in. He's only starred in as a star in three movies. One was this movie called Edge of Darkness, which is about a, uh, a father and a daughter. Terrible. The beat Then he made The Beaver with Jodie Foster, where he's a guy who starts talking through a beaver puppet. And then he made a movie last year which is pretty good called Bloodfather, in which he plays a kind of redneck uh yeah, con um, you know, who again has a daughter he has to save. Um and it's uh and he but, was in a movie called Get the Gringo. Right, but I think Get the Gringo uh that's it was a bit part, if I remember correctly.
0: Mm-hmm. Was it okay.
2: Something. Anyway, it's a weird I just think he he didn't didn't have to act, it's just that he wasn't certainly getting you know, no one was offering him A-list parts, right? And he's you know richer than Croesus, so he does whatever he wants. And so he liked these pictures, and he just, I think, switched agencies and got himself a major. A- he didn't have an agent for a long time.
1: Well, uh, WME fired WME fired him after the I think the first outburst, right? And that, that that was one of the things people said. Oh well, you know, once you lose your big powerful agent, you're just it's over for you. Uh, and um, you know, but he's Mel Gibson. His movies make money. His movies have made money, so he made his movies, and he didn't need an agent. And now he's at CAA, um, um, and they're you know they're going to represent him. And I'm not sure exactly at that at that his level what that agency what an agency does, but I'm, I guarantee you that agency has probably tripled his access to financing for his movies and tripled his ability to get a great distribution deal. Just right. because the they, other, can, they can marshal the the bids and they can create a you know a, um, you know a plan for it.
2: The other great thing about Mel Gibson was the the reaction shot at the Golden Globes when <laughs> <And> they <laughs> cut during Meryl Streep's speech. They cut to a shot of him and Vince Vaughn. They were sitting at the same table. Yeah. you know these two right wing guys in Hollywood, both of whom looked had this kind of quizzical expression on their face, like. What is she doing? There was there was this kind of bizarre, you know. What? What is she saying? I don't know. You know, it was a, it's a funny picture, you know, because it's right. like it's like uh, could you could you speed it up or something? And of course, Meryl Streep got her twentieth nomination this year for a, not that good performance in Florence Foster Jenkins, just because she, a she's Meryl Streep and b she made that speech at the Golden Globes and. In my in my estimation, our producer Scott Emmergut suggests that we should give uh, Super Bowl picks. Given the fact that I've watched five minutes of uh, football this year, I will go with the New England Patriots because my friend—I have a friend who is Tom Brady's orthopedist. Really? <laughs> so I therefore I'm therefore now all in with Tom Brady because of my friend his orthopedist. So that's uh, that's like knowing a midget named Harry. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. So I'm, I'm going with the Patriots, uh, and uh, that's all there is to it.
1: Uh, uh, go
2: ahead, Rob.
1: I was going to ask. I mean, I don't I actually don't know this, but what who, who is right now? Who is the favorite?
2: I think the Patriots are the favorite. Although I think in the War of the Quarterbacks, from what I read, Matt Ryan of the Falcons had right. a season. I mean the uh, pictures
1: are yeah I mean even although up,
2: although Brady had this astounding season where he you know missed four games and nonetheless touched right. touchdown passes and only got and only was intercepted twice but right. this guy Matt Ryan apparently had you know so the, the favorite
1: we're talking about that, that's the favorite now I'm, I'm talking about in Vegas right it's it's got it, it can't be it can't be Atlanta it's got to be New England right
0: no John was talking about among orth, orthopedists.
2: Yeah. Oh, I, was right. Right. <laughs> I don't know Matt Ryan's orthopedist, which is why... Well, we,
1: I'm going to take the Falcons. No the because the Falcons I'm going can... to take the Falcons, because uh, Tom Brady's old, and he's tired. There, I well, said it. He,
2: he, uh... But how dare you say that? Yeah, I'm going to say uh, it. About Dave Maimon's patient. Right. Uh,
0: and uh, Jonah, what about you? Uh... I... Guess the Patriots, I, and it just it seems to me that yeah, Patriots. But I I have nothing, no empirical or theoretical data to pin this on. And just that's what it feels like to me.
2: You know what's hilarious about this? Before we wrap, so there, there are the three of us talking about this, and clearly we don't we don't give a damn about football. So this is like uh, Sean Davis of the Federalist, like a couple weeks ago, started demanding. In, in in one of his uh, hilarious prosecutions of mainstream media bias, started demanding to know who in the mainstream media either had a pickup truck or right. knew anybody with a pickup truck, since pickup trucks are actually the number one vehicle sellers in the United States, and it was this, you know, you live in a bubble unless you know somebody who owns a pickup truck. And the answers were pretty hilarious, <laughs> or in fact, hilarious people started getting all crazy defensive right right they took this charles murray are you in a bubble quiz you know um so i think this has now really become true of me and american sports which i used to be a big consumer of i just don't care anymore and i feel like you know that that means that i just don't understand america really
1: well no i mean that, that's not true i mean the nfl ratings are down there, 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 there is a sameness now to NFL. I mean, you know, we're talking about the Patriots and Super Bowl, which we could have been talking about that, you know, years, and years, and years, and years. So, there is a sameness to it, and it's got to shake itself up. I mean, NASCAR is shaking itself up. Um, these these sports have to, they got to compete. It's a really competitive marketplace now for live TV. You know, live events. Um, it'll be interesting to see what who who tunes into the Super Bowl. How many? Yeah.
0: Jonah's yawning just at the thought of it. No, I'm sorry for the yawning. I just I got very little that's sleep okay. last night. So that's okay.
2: So uh, Jonah, where 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 can people come hear you uh, be brilliant?
0: Um, I will be at a at the Roanoke Conference in um I think it's called Ocean Shores in Washington State. Uh, if you just Google Roanoke Conference, uh, I think maybe just dot org. It will come up, and I'm the keynoter this Saturday night, and then next week I'll be at a Cato event in Florida. I don't know if that's open to the public, and uh, and at some point when I finish this book, I will either finish this book and be very happy or I will be lying in a pool of my own filth dead because I'm exhausted from it, but – that's all. Oh, I'm good.
2: Okay, so Jonah will be lying a pool in his own, of his own filth. Uh, <laughs> I, Rob, sounds
1: good. Like every Rob,
2: Rob's work can be seen along with uh, you can join 7.6 million people. Right. Every week <laughs> watching Rob Long's Kevin Can Wait on CBS Monday nights at 8, 7 central. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. That's correct.
2: That's correct. Now, you told me before the show started – uh, when I made a joke about how you didn't have a limo taking you out to the out to the studio uh, because you were number two in the demo this week to The Bachelor, that this was a horrible lie on my part. Yeah, that's, it's a horrible number lie. Number one uh, there's, the
1: there's, there are studies that show – I have studies and facts and – I have alternative facts for your uh, what your ratings. Say. Well, it depends on what you say about the demo. The demo. It depends on you mean the CBS demo or the other demo, demo.
2: By the way, for for people who want to know, refers in the in the television business to, to the viewers who are eighteen
1: yeah. to forty nine years of age. That's considered the demographic, but it's really not the demographic for CBS, which is the most profitable uh, broadcast network around. Uh, their demo is twenty five to fifty four. So they add a they add. Uh, uh- Eight years, seven years at the top, and they clip off the 18-year-olds because um, they just do. And in that demo, in the CBS demo, we number numero uno, my friend.
2: There you go. Well, I I, I don't know how that can be because I I don't watch The Bachelor, but I understand from uh, one of my kids that there is on The Bachelor one of the 25 girls is a 23-year-old young woman who has a nanny. A nanny. Wow. A Danny who oh, wow. uh, who accompanies her and whom she calls her her nanny. And I think America, why would America not want to watch that?
1: I think The Bachelor should marry the nanny.
2: Well, I think The Bachelor should marry the 23 year old and then cheat with the nanny.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. Or something. I I, do you, would you ever The script writes itself. It does. There you go.
3: The totally, wrong
2: totally does. It totally does. And for me, I will be on Fox's Red Eye uh, Thursday, late Thursday night, early Friday morning, February 2nd, February 3rd. So
0: perfect.
2: Uh, that's going to be really, you know, something. Oh,
0: if, if Scott Emmergut can put down the pipe long enough to get this podcast out today, um, I will be on Special Report this evening. Oh,
1: Special perfect.
2: Report Wednesday night. That would be Wednesday night, everybody. That's right. Very exciting to see Jonah on special report. You're going to bump up in the demo with, uh, with Marie Harf and, uh, and, uh, uh Nigel Farage, <laughs> the, the two, new, the two new Fox news person, two new Fox news personalities. All right. All right. We're told we got a wrap. So, um, it's been a great time. It's been great fun. It's been a great uh, pleasure. See you. Uh, enjoy the bread and circuses. And, uh, We'll be back to Uh, keep hope alive, and we'll be back to you sometime in the future.
1: Good day. See you, fellas. See you guys. Great. Thanks, guys.